This is the second story in the Watch and Wait anthology. We've already discussed what the anthology was about. It's on behalf of the Lymphoma Association, who are now known as Lymphoma Action, it appears. This one follows on from uh, Angela Robson's absolutely beautiful uh, docudrama, might I call it, and I hope she doesn't take me to task on that. Uh, Angela's fiction is derived from personal experiences in her travels abroad. This one is by Burley Doherty. Now, a lot of people may know the name Burley Doherty because Burley is a very famous author for children's work. Uh, many of her books are illustrated. Here's a short bio of Burley Doherty before I read the story. Burley Doherty has written over 60 books as well as plays for radio, theatre and television, short stories and poetry. She has won major awards and prizes in all fields, including the Carnegie Medal twice, the Writers Guild Award twice, Film and Television Award and Royal Philharmonic Society Award for a libretto, and was shortlisted for the International Astrid Lindgren Award. Burley has been published in 21 different languages and has travelled the world extensively, speaking at international literature festivals and conferences. She began over 30 years ago by writing short stories for BBC Radio 4 Morning Story and has published one short story collection, Running on Ice. Much of her writing is for young adults, though she also writes picture book texts, children's books and has two novels for adults, Requiem and The Vinegar Jar. Burley is best known for Dear Nobody, which won many awards, both as a young adult novel and as a play for theatre and for radio. It has also been made into a television drama. Her book for children, Street Child, also a play script, is read and performed extensively in schools throughout the country, and she is currently completing a long-awaited sequel. This story, Crossing the Glacier, won first prize in the Daily Telegraph short story competition and was published in the Daily Telegraph book of contemporary short stories. It has also been broadcast on BBC Radio 4. You can follow Burley at www.burleydoherty.com or on Twitter where she reveals the life of a writer. Her most recent novel is The Company of ghosts. Crossing the Glacier by Burley Doherty It was three years since Gerda's husband had died. The memory of his going was always there, like ice around her heart. She had a lovely house in the mountains, They'd worked hard for it. Her daughter Inga spent her holidays there these days, bringing the grandsons with her. This time, she tried to persuade Gerda to sell the house and move south so they could be closer together. The two women took the boys up into the forest to forage for bilberries and wild raspberries. Come home with us, Inga urged her mother. I love it here. Gerda did not expect her daughter to understand. I can't go back to the city now. What is it that keeps you here? 
said Inga. It can't be the campsite. Well, in a way it is, Gerda said. She didn't expect Inga to understand that either. It's so tying for you. Such long hours. Such a short season in this country. It's hardly worth it. It pays for my holidays, Gerda said a little dreamily. The campsite has always been my job. When Stefan was alive, she'd been proud to pay with her own earnings for the October coach trips they took to Austria and Switzerland or the French Alps, visiting the mountains of other countries. Stefan had given her the mountains long ago, when she was scarcely more than a child. Now she was uncomfortable away from them, or from the sound of the rushing milky blue beck that ran outside her house. She loved the campers to come and share it with her. They were like her family. They liked her sight because of the beck, but it was too swift for their canoes and too deathly cold to swim in. She laughed to see their faces when they tried. Why, the glacier it came from was little more than two kilometres away. You had only to glance up to see it there, a crinkled curtain of ice hanging over the valley. She stood up, stretching her back. Above the trees, the white tips of the mountains glimmered. And it keeps me busy, she said. Gerda would sit every day from nine in the morning till nine at night, June to September, in the log cabin between the camper's toilets and the showers. She had her television in there, turned down low, and she always listened out for the weather forecast so she could pass it on to her campers. She loved to be able to tell them there was good weather to come. There was so much rain here. I suppose it stops you from being lonely, Inga said later, just before she left. She was standing with her back to the house where she had been born. In the campsite, at the bottom of the lane, she could hear children playing. That's a good thing. It was true that there were always campers to talk to. People tended not to stay very long, though. They'd book in for a couple of days, do the guided glacier walk, and then be off to the fjords and into the serious walking country of the Jutenheimen. So the Englishwoman fascinated Gerda. She came on her own, which was quite unusual for a female camper, and she didn't seem to want to leave. She stayed for days and days, just booking in a night at a time. A car, but its GB sticker and a black stripe struck across the headlamps, hardly ever moved from the site. She strolled up to the mountain every day, or along the beck, read a lot, and when Gerda closed up her cabin, she was always bedded down for the night, her tent zipped up, no light on. Gerda watched her, and worried about her. That woman is unhappy, she thought. One evening she waited until the Englishwoman had finished her meal and was carrying her bowl of dishes back from the washing-up cabin to her tent. Instead of scurrying in after her, 
to check whether the floor needed mopping. Gerda followed her down the field, calling out a greeting. You seem to like being here. She joined the woman by the beck, where the pale apple-mint water creamed over the white slabs of the boulders. Oh, I do. It's a beautiful place. The facilities are very clean. Thank you, Gerda murmured, and tomorrow the weather will be fine. We should not have had today's rain. It has come up from Oslo, but the TV did not foretell of it. Forecast it. Good. I'm glad it will be fine. The woman hesitated, then, a bowl of dishes in her arms. You have come here to walk in the mountains? Sort of. She half laughed, put down her bowl, and stood slightly turned away from Gerda, her hand shielding her eyes. I came to walk on that thing, actually. The glacier, of course. Everybody does. Gerda was proud. It is an extraordinary phenomenon, is it not? Eternal ice. Quite a terrifying thing to have hanging over your house, the woman laughed. You've been across it, of course. Only once, Gerda said after a pause. I walked once on that glacier. And walked away from my childhood, she thought. A long time ago. The Englishwoman laughed ruefully. I came here to do it, and I must do it, but I can't. It's so stupid. I go up to where the walk starts, and I see people being roped up by the guide, and I can't make myself do it. Why must you? asked Gerda. Perhaps it is enough to come here and admire it. It began to rain, and both women turned away. Gerda went back to her cabin and flicked through the selection of postcards that she kept in stock for the campers. They were of the glacier, in all its different moods, and they were all, she thought, ugly. They showed a grey, crinkled skin like the hide of an elephant. That was not how she remembered it. You have to look into the heart of it. She could remember Stefan saying that to her as if it had been yesterday. When she went home that night, she paused for a moment outside the hut, where her husband's climbing equipment was kept, boots, ropes, ice axes, crampons. She had not looked at them since his death. She had not been able to. The next day was as beautiful as her TV had promised it would be. A perfect, crisp Norwegian day, with the sky empty of clouds and the beck sparkling back the sunshine. Gerda beamed at her campers as she passed them, delighted for them. The Englishwoman came to book in for another night, and Gerda gave her the best of the postcards. I'll send it to my son, the woman said. He does stuff like this, glacier walking, mountaineering, skiing, all that kind of thing. She put the card quickly into her bag and raised her hands in a little hopeless gesture. That's why I came, really. I just want to know what it's like, that's all. His world. You should have brought him with you. Or is he too old now for holidays with his mother? We used to do everything together. 
I've never even lived with his father. It's always been just me and Sandy. And now he's gone to university. And he started a new life that I don't know anything about. I can't talk to him about anything any more. Absiling. That's another thing he does. I thought it was something to do with yachts. A child came running to Gerda to say there was a rat in his tent. Gerda picked up a brush and ran after the boy, apologising as she went. A few minutes later, a small brown and tan creature darted down to the beck, chased by Gerda. "'I want you to know,' Gerda said, panting, "'that it was not a rat in the tent. I do not have rats. I have lemmings. All it can do is scream, silly creature. Sometimes they scream themselves to death, but no harm done.' "'It's all right.' The Englishwoman smiled. They're all over the mountain, those things. I thought they were guinea pigs, actually. You go and walk that glacier, Gerda said to her. You've come all this way and you've experienced rain and lemmings. Do what you came for. She found herself watching out all day for the Englishwoman's return. When she saw her at last, she called out eagerly. Yes? The woman shook her head. She came over to the cabin. I'm hopeless, aren't I? Hopeless. All I want to do is go home and say to Sandy, Guess what I did in Norway? She laughed. And I can't do it. Why do people hide their pain in laughter? Gerda wondered. You are afraid to do it, she said. There's no shame in that. You're afraid of falling? Not falling. Failing. That guide up there is only a kid. He's younger than Sandy. What will he do if I stand in the middle of his rope line and... Cry. Can't go forwards or backwards. Just cry. What could he do to help me? Now I understand, said Gerda. Now I understand everything. When they brought her news of her husband's death, she had not cried. They were strangers who had found his half-frozen body on the mountain. What was her grief to do with them? She had stood and watched the silent roped procession bringing him home to her, like tidy shopkeepers. The strangers had arranged his climbing things in her hut. She had thanked them, but she had not cried. Today, Gerda said, you will walk across the glacier. She recognised the start of panic in the woman's face. She had felt like that when the same words had been spoken to her forty years before. Today? But won't it be too late? The walk finishes at six. I will go with you. Gerda took her to her own house, through the living room with the lovely carved and gilded cupboards that Stefan had made. She opened the door to the hut. It smelt of Stefan. It was a good smell of leather and wax and metal from the collection of crampons that had been her daughter's. 
they chose pairs that fitted their own walking boots. Then Gerda picked out ice axes, harnesses and a rope. We will take food and hot drinks, she said. It will take a long time and it will be hard work. When they were ready, she held out her hand in a cordial, shy way. I am asking you to trust me with your life, she said. And all I know about you is the registration number of your car. I'm Pam, the Englishwoman said. And I am Gilda. When they arrived at the snout of the glacier, the mountain was deserted, except for a large grey-brown bird flapping around the white boulders. The pool below the glacier was a deep, still blue. Above the women, the crinkled ice cliffs sheared up a huge stretch of silence into the sky. The women scrambled over the smooth boulders, hot with effort, exhausting themselves with their haste. As soon as they came to the hem of the ice skirt, Pam lost her footing. She clung on to Gerda. I can't, she said. We'll kill ourselves. It is important for you to know how treacherous the ice is, Gerda said, remembering her husband's words. You are not in control. Now try your crampons and you will trust them. They fastened the spiked crampon shields around their boots. Gerda showed Pam how to place her feet firm and flat as she walked, how to walk sideways up and down slopes. She showed her how to use the spiked end of her ice axe like a walking stick and how to grip the ice sideways with the blade. Then she fastened their harnesses and tied the rope that held them together like an umbilical cord and showed her how it must hang, not trailing, not tight, between them. Now, Gerda turned away from Pam and stared up at the cliffs of the glacier. We are ready. The two women stepped cautiously onto the ice and, little by little, began to haul themselves up the sides of the first corridor. Gerda was no more confident than Pam. She felt as if she was leading her own child unwillingly into darkness and curiously she felt herself to be that child, to have become again a young girl who had never left her parents' side, making that journey again for the first time, for Stefan's sake. She scrambled up onto the first ledge and waited for Pam to join her. The ice was as beautiful to her now as it was all those years ago. She had forgotten. She peered down into the whirls and crevasses, into the intense blue of its steep gullies, into the deep ravines of the mountain beneath her feet. Spindrift wind had crested the surface like lacy coral. As the rope slackened, and she heard Pam's gasping breath behind her. She stamped again into the surface, finding purchase with the spikes of her crampons, anchoring herself against the sheer slip of ice beneath her feet. Her face was taut and set, intent on her task. 
Her breath came in long, labouring gasps, wrenched from such depths that she could have thought it was from the mountain itself. Then she heard a thin, reedy spiral of sound that seemed to rise from the ice. She stopped, marvelling at its fragile loveliness, and realised that the sound was human. She turned round to see that Pam was singing. Happy? Gerda laughed. More than I've ever been in my life. I can't believe I'm doing this. We should have a photograph to show your son. I didn't bring my camera, said Pam. I didn't really think we'd do it. Unexpectedly and without control, she started laughing. Gerda felt a sudden gush of movement inside her head. She turned away. Something was welling up in her that could not be controlled or quenched, rearing like a wild thing out of her heart. She cupped both hands to her mouth, but the thing was not to be held back. Her limbs heaved with the power of it. She sank to her knees and cried for Stefan. As she had never been able to cry before. Pam, shocked, edged across the ice towards her. She looked down at Gerda and then knelt next to her, holding out her hands, just touching the older woman's shoulders. She cried with her. At last, the terrible sound of grief quietened down to whimpers and then into silence. There comes a time, Pam said aloud, not even realising she was saying it, when you have to let go. I understand that. Next day, Pam packed up her tent while the dew was still on the grass. Gerda waved her goodbye and went to her cabin. She switched on the TV to catch the first weather forecast and did her round of cleaning the toilets and showers. Everything was spotless. She would leave it that way. She would close the site early this year. She would have a holiday by the sea for a change with the grandchildren. She would arrange it this morning. She glanced up at the glacier, hanging half in mist, half in sunlight, like a huge curtain across the end of the valley. I know you now, she said. And I am free. Mm -hmm.